This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Welcome to Libri. This is the second lecture of our fall term and so the series will continue each Friday night. Um, through October, beginning of November. And uh, I do not have the list of lectures in front of me, so I, I, I cannot announce who comes next. Anybody know who works here? Who's lecturing next? Dick, please. Kais. Kais. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got that wrong. Competition, illusion, and excellence. Thank you. Do you want to give a little blurb on what that's going to be about? Or? Uh, it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I hope to come and find out. Good. Well, uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. We, um, Some of you may know that uh, last term and for a couple terms in a row, we've been broadcasting or live streaming on Zoom, and it's really sort of a pleasure not to be doing that anymore. I know that there are advantages to that. Um, people from far away can listen in, but it's also nice to not be looking at a computer screen, just be looking at real people in the room. A lot less distracting, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, I think it just will probably mean better engagement uh, with all of you. So, uh, thank you for coming out, and uh, on a Friday night, there's lots of other things that one could do on a Friday night. Um, so, the lecture tonight is really a sort of a basic lecture about the Gospels. It's not, there's nothing particularly cutting edge about what I'm talking about, no, no new fancy theology or anything like that. Um, it's entitled, The Gift Comes First, The Essential Chronology of the Gospel, and hopefully that'll become clear what I'm talking about there. But um, my goal is to explore one way of articulating the message of the Gospel that has been very helpful to me. Uh, and in doing this, we will talk about the concept of grace or gift and what is meant by grace in the Bible. So most Christian people would say that grace is the core of the Christian faith, is the core of the gospel, the sort of central defining characteristic of Christianity. Um, many people would think of it as their only real source of hope, is it the grace of God, something that's, that's a belief really worth fighting for. Um, there's two complicating factors, at least. There's, there's lots of complicating factors always. But um, first, if our salvation is based on grace, uh, on what Paul calls the gift of God, we need to define it correctly and precisely. If it's so important, we really do need to know what it is. What do we mean by it when we use that word? Not everybody has the same working definition of grace. When the Bible talks about grace and, and gifts, the words that are translated grace and gifts in the New Testament, uh, they're part of a whole body of words that have to do with giving and gifts, and there's different shades of meaning in, in, in all of those words. So the result is that it's not at all a given that when different people use the word grace that they actually mean the same thing. Exactly. 
So there has been some very, very helpful scholarship recently. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, uh, two books particularly that I'll be, be looking at um, by John Barclay. Uh, Paul and the Gift, which is a very big, more scholarly book about Paul's understanding of what grace is in his letters. And then, thankfully, a smaller book, which is basically like the cliff notes of that big one for people like me, called uh, Paul and the Power of Grace. Um, also very, very good book. Very helpful. So that's, that's one complicating factor is that grace can mean different things to different people. Uh, no matter how important you think it is, what do you mean by it? <laughs> and secondly, uh, whatever your working definition is of, of the word grace, it's very hard for many people to really trust personally. The news of God's acceptance uh, is great, but the thought that it really applies to me is somehow implausible. Uh, I may believe in the gospel as a concept, but do I actually have confidence that I, me, specifically, am known and loved and accepted by God, given what I am? So regardless of what I say I believe, do I have the tangible sense of security and approval that should come from being loved unconditionally by God? There is belief, and then there's the fruit of that belief. Do I have the fruit? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Many Christians, I think, when they're honest, would confess that this is a real struggle. Grace is an elusive thing. Even if it's not a complicated concept, it's an elusive reality to believe that it actually really applies to me. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not logical the way that we exclude ourselves from grace. You know, it makes no logical sense that if, if everybody that calls on Christ is saved by grace, just not me. Like, why does that? We're, <laughs> we can't argue for, for uh, coherently for why that's the case, but it's, it's existentially that's what we feel and experience sometimes. Not everybody, thankfully. Um, so, what are some of the ways of thinking about the gospel that can help us in ordinary life? What are some reminders? that we can hold on to throughout the day that will help to anchor us to the reality of grace and guard us from lies that often cut us adrift. Um, <clears throat> my outline, let's see if I can... This is one more bit of technology to figure out. Let's see. So, um, my outline is very simple. I'm just going to look at a, at a biblical theme, look at particularly just two different passages in the Bible, one Old Testament, one New Testament passage. Um, and then I'll explore this idea of what it means that the gift comes first. And then lastly, talk a little bit about John Barclay's work. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, it's not even a book report, it's just like a... Uh, Engaging with one aspect of, of his argument, which is I found really interesting and helpful. So, um, what do the Ten Commandments and the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, have in common? Um, hopefully that will be clear by the end of this section. Uh, I'm going to read Exodus 20, um, which is one of the places in, uh, in which the, the Ten Commandments appear. <coughs> And bear with me here, this is, uh, oh gosh, it's terrible and small, sorry. You'll just have to trust me, I'll be reading what's there. Um, 
I didn't realize how tiny it would be on the screen. Okay. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So the Ten Commandments were, were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were spoken in the presence of all the people and recorded two copies on two different stone tablets. And as, as some of you probably learned in Sunday school, uh, the Ten Commandments are God's way of telling his people how they should live in relation to him and in relationship to each other. And uh, it seems strange maybe that the law is a place where we would start in a lecture about grace. Like where very often we think of grace and the law as being sort of diametrically opposed in the scripture, even though they're, they're not really. But, but um, why, why start here to engage in a conversation about grace and gift? Aren't the Ten Commandments just rules that people have to follow to obey and please God? Uh, interestingly, um, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, scholarship has been done in recent years, go, going back a, a while back, I think, um, People who study the history of the ancient Near East, uh, a lot of the the records that survive are are in the form of covenants. Um, covenants were basically uh, agreements, treaties between two parties. Uh, they could be for a number of different purposes and a number of different contexts. But many people have noted that the Ten Commandments takes the form of an ancient suzerain vassal covenant. Um, a suzerain vassal covenant was an a asymmetrical treaty, meaning it's an agreement between a very powerful king and a much less powerful king, or a very powerful nation and a much less powerful nation. Um, the, the powerful ruler was the suzerain, and the less powerful ruler was the vassal. And typically in this kind of covenant, a suzerain vassal covenant, the suzerain would be identified in the beginning, he would be named, 
would promise protection from other local powers and armies and would very often grant the vassal land. Some of these covenants are sort of land grants. You may have this land um, for your nation or for your family. then there would be, this is sort of the standard way that these covenants would work, then there would be a series of stipulations or requirements that the vassal would have to adhere to. Usually the covenant would demand total and exclusive loyalty to the suzerain, meaning the vassal could not enter into another covenant with another king. Uh, This would be considered treason, and the suzerain would then have the right under the covenant to just lay waste to the vassal. The vassal would also be usually required to pay tribute to the suzerain in some way or another. So there's, so there's, there's, a, there's a give and take. Um, there's a commitment that's, that's recorded down on this, uh, on this covenant. And it's really fascinating. The structure of the Ten Commandments follows the conventional form of this kind of covenant. And there's many people who study the Old Testament in great depth who can tell you much, much more about this than I can. Um, but interestingly, God chooses to establish his relationship with his people using a form of treaty, very, very common to the culture that everyone would have understood. This is just a fascinating concept, um, amazing, actually, that God is, is choosing to engage and enter into history, and he's not just inventing some new form of communicating, He is using a form that will be understandable to the people to whom he's coming. So true, true to convention, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments now, true to the conventional form of, of a covenant, Yahweh identifies himself in the beginning. He demands exclusive loyalty from his people and lists stipulations for them to obey, which is the rest of the commandments. Uh, But in using the common format of a covenant, God actually displays how different he is from any other, from any ancient Near Eastern king or suzerain. Uh, By choosing a conventional form to communicate, Yahweh actually highlights how utterly unique he is. This is a fascinating thing that, that often you find God doing in the Old Testament. Finding some, finding some conventional, very understandable, cultural way of communicating to somebody, but in, in order to display that he is completely different from the assumptions of the culture. Um, so, <clears throat> the Ten Commandments reveal God as a suzerain who takes 100% of the initiative in blessing the vassal. The way he identifies himself is as the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. So that, that's, the, that's the part of a covenant where the, where the suzerain identifies himself. Uh, but God identifies himself as the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. Instead of establishing a relationship between two pre-existing nations, which is the way most covenants would have worked, this covenant describes a suzerain who made the vassal nation a people in the first place. Israel did not exist until Yahweh called them into existence. So the oppressed and discouraged descendants of Jacob did not think to ask Yahweh to make them a nation. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they did not even remember who Yahweh was. Uh, Yahweh had to reintroduce himself through Moses and radically intervene on their behalf against Egypt um, in order for them to know who he was again. So ancient covenants were also, uh, to a large degree, future-oriented. They would have stipulations about what was required 
And then they would have a list of blessings and curses. If you do it, this, this will happen to you and this will be good. If you don't, you will suffer the wrath. Uh, but all very future oriented. If this, then that in the future. <clears throat> but Yahweh's covenant begins with what he's already done for them in the past. He starts by reminding them who he has already shown himself to be in their lives, within memory. So he is the God who brought them out of Egypt, the land of slavery. And it's in light of this amazing self-description that Israel is to obey all the stipulations. So the question comes to mind for me, if God has already heard their cries, witnessed their suffering, removed them out of Egypt, punished their oppressors with dramatic displays of power, given them an identity, made them a nation, and promised them a land to settle in, why would anyone even consider worshipping any other god? (laughs) Right? Uh, Why would that option cross anybody's mind? Right? I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You shall have no other god before me. That doesn't sound like a big ask. Mm -hmm. You know, especially for someone who who remembered the Exodus. And really, neither do the other commandments, which, which actually, if you stop and think about them, are absolutely for the benefit of the very people that are, that are called to obey them. Um, so why in the world wouldn't they do everything in their power to obey these laws, which are so clearly for their own good? Uh, think of the good news of the Sabbath to people who have been enslaved. I mean, this is something, we always talk about the Sabbath as if it's this thing that we have to make ourselves do because we love being busy and it's so hard to unplug and slow down and appreciate God's gifts and, and all these things. And you're like, wait, 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 just remember like what that would have sounded like to people who have been enslaved, who basically were born to work until they die into the ground with absolutely no value and dignity, and they're just they're there to work and die. They're not given a Sabbath. The idea that they would rest uh, and honor God by resting uh, would have been a joke in Egypt. So um, I think the Ten Commandments would have sounded really good. (laughs) The Ten Commandments do lay down God's expectations for how Israel should live. Um, But faithfulness to these laws, I think, is simply an appropriate response to the gift of freedom, of life, and the gift of the existence of, of Israel as a nation at all. So the point is, God's gift came first. And it's so interesting that even in the law, when God gives the Ten Commandments, this idea of gift coming first is right there, front and center. Um, obedience should have followed as a response to that gift. Of course, the Israelites were sinners just like us. Uh, and fail just like we fail to honor God. So much of the Old Testament basically chronicles the failures of the people to be faithful to this God that gave them everything. That's really the tragedy of uh, of the Old Testament. Um, and yet, you can see a way in which just even the way that the the Old Te- the, um, the Ten Commandments are laid out, that the stipulations are really just a response to what God has already done for them. So, the Exodus, which is summed up in the opening line of the Ten Commandments, becomes really the the defining identity 
forming moment for Israel. It's an identity forming moment. Their God is the one who freed them from slavery, and they are the nation made up of people freed from slavery. This is um, such a foundational event in the in the history of Israel that they were commanded to remind their children of it. They were commanded to celebrate the Passover every year in a very bodily engaged way uh, so that it's not just something you're remembering in your head but something you're acting out uh, with your body uh, and it's a great act of power and compassion that they uh, sorry it's, it's this it's, it's the exodus itself that so many of the um, Old Testament writers particularly I think of the Psalms look, look back to when uh, they feel abandoned by God Think of the lament psalms. So many of the lament psalms and the times in which Israel has been in real darkness and real trouble. What is the historical event that Israel remembers and looks back to? It's the Exodus. It's God brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt. He is the same God now as he was then. Therefore, we can have hope and take courage. Um, and so this was just, that's what I mean by an identity-forming event. This is the founding of their nation, but also it's something that they when they look around them and they feel that there's no evidence for God being good and with them, they can always remember what God did for their ancestors. And this is hard for people who are very individualistic to get excited about. Because we want to know what God's going to do for, for me right now, in the next ten minutes, right? But this idea of, actually, I could, get, I could get encouragement from reflecting on what God did several hundred years ago to my ancestors. That's, that's a little bit convicting to me. Um, but that, the point is, that God who rescued our ancestors from Egypt is the same God now, who's with us now. <clears throat> and as we approach the New Testament, uh, it's no surprise that the Exodus becomes one of the chief metaphors for salvation offered by God in Jesus Christ, who also rescues us from slavery. But in the New Testament context, it's slavery to sin and death. And so, uh, so many of the New Testament passages use the Exodus as really this uh, metaphorical illustration of what Jesus has come to do now fully. Something much more challenging than, than in a sense, uh, freeing people from physical slavery. He's freeing people from the slavery of sin and death, which has plagued all of humanity from the very beginning. Um, so, <clears throat> moving forward, just going to skip a couple things, and we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. Maybe slightly more legible to you, sorry. Um, this is Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho, this is talking about Jesus. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone into the, to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, this is another another popular Sunday school story. I decided to go with the classics today. Um, one of the problems with the Sunday school retelling of Luke 19 is that it sometimes implies that Zacchaeus' biggest problem was that he was short. Um, and that's obviously the fun part of the story. And kids like to hear, you know, there's songs about it and, and uh, this guy running ahead and climbing a tree so we can see Jesus. It's, it's fun to picture it. Um, actually, Zacchaeus' biggest problem was not that he was short. Uh, his biggest problem was that he was a total scoundrel. He's a terrible person. <laughs> Uh, he was a scoundrel not just because he collected taxes for the Romans who were occupying his people's country uh, but because he indulged in the the wicked practice of overtaxing his own people many of whom were already poor in order to grow rich himself so this is the form of extortion and this was very typical uh, in Jesus' day tax collectors were, were not just despised for collaborating with the Romans they were despised because they collaborated with the Romans but also demanded more tax money than even the Romans were demanding and then taking the extra for themselves. And so this is the way some people grew very rich at that time. Um, And so the people of Jericho weren't simply just being mean to Zacchaeus. They were outraged by the injustice of his actions. Much like the analogy I think of is, you know, when we start to think that Zacchaeus was just sad for being short. Um... It's a little bit like if you were a French resistance fighter during World War II, something like the outrage you would feel towards one of your countrymen who collaborated with the Nazis in order to get rich. This is sort of like maybe something of the outrage you would feel. Um, Despite his scoundrelism, it is obvious that God was at work in Zacchaeus' heart. So he's not quite at peace. He's a little restless. He's heard something about Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He's very curious and it's not um, an idle, passive sort of curiosity, like I wonder who this traveling rabbi is, because he runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs this tree in order to be above Jesus when Jesus walks by. Um, I don't know much about what the life of a tax collector would be like in Jericho in the first century, but I, I think this is, I hazard to guess this is unusual behavior. Um, maybe undignified behavior. <laughs> so Jesus passes under him, looks up and calls him by name. And this is striking, not just that Jesus knows his name, but that he uses his name. Because he actually acknowledges Zacchaeus' existence, respectfully. Uh, Something I imagine that had not happened for a while to Zacchaeus. Uh, Even more than that, Jesus does Zacchaeus great honor by uh, essentially inviting himself to dinner. Um, In that day, it would have been a great honor to be chosen by a rabbi like Jesus Um, you get to be the one that offers hospitality to this important person. So the text implies that Zacchaeus was very excited by this. It says he was joyful. Uh, And we can identify with this. If you think of, if you have a favorite band that you go out and you see them playing and there's a big crowd and it's really exciting and after the show they're shaking hands with people and they look at you and be like, hey, I want to come to your house tonight for, you know, for coffee or whatever. That's would be a big deal, right? Uh, who cares that they just invited you themselves over to your house? You'd still be excited about that. It's not a rudeness. Um, 
So Jesus heads off with Zacchaeus, and everybody else starts to grumble. And I, I you know, you imagine that they're cynical about Jesus. Of course, he picks the richest guy to hang out with. Um, does he not know how Zacchaeus makes his money, or does he just not care? Is Jesus morally compromised, or is he just ignorant about who he's spending time with? In any case, their response shows that they believe honor should be bestowed to worthy recipients. This is the assumption behind their bitterness. Honor should be bestowed to people who really deserve it, not to people like Zacchaeus. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus, as a result of having been honored by Jesus, makes an amazing declaration. So he stands up and he says um, that he'll give away half of of everything he has to the poor, and that it it implies... From the rest that remains, he will pay back all the people that he has cheated over the years fourfold. Um, And presumably he would have taken records about all this. But in in any case, between these two pledges, we can assume that this is a lot of money. And we should not assume that Zacchaeus was any, any more a rich man. We don't know. We don't really know how rich he was. But, um... He makes these pledges with joy, though, because he actually knows that he has received something far better. So um, a bunch of money is about to leave his house, uh, but salvation has come to his house. And this is what Jesus tells him at the very end of the story. You notice what Jesus does not do in this story, and this is really sort of what I'm getting at. Uh, first of all, he does not make fun of him for being up a tree. This would have been my temptation. Um, he does not look up into the tree and say, Zacchaeus, give half of your money to the poor and then pay back everybody you've defrauded fourfold, and then I will come to your house and honor you. Jesus would have every right to say that. That sounds like a reasonable thing for Jesus to say, right? But he doesn't do that. Uh, Neither does Jesus look up into the tree and say, you scoundrel, who do you think you are trying to get in touch with me? You are a cruel greedy, lying, disloyal, hard-hearted, shameless cheat. Where's your conscience? Jesus could have said those things too. They were true. But no. Uh, Instead of all this, Jesus leads with a gift. It's hard to imagine a less worthy recipient of honor, but this does not stop Jesus from honoring Zacchaeus. Uh, No one is more aware of Zacchaeus' sin than Jesus. No one has more right to be offended by Zacchaeus' sin than Jesus. And yet, Jesus initiates an actual friendship with him. And after receiving and enjoying that gift, Zacchaeus comes to a place where he's convicted of his own guilt. And is ready to repent and start making amends for for the significant damage that he had done in that city. Jesus does not have to condemn him. For Zacchaeus, receiving the gift of Jesus' friendship illuminates his unworthiness in his own eyes. Grace awakens his dormant conscience. And he's floored by Jesus' kindness, and he's ready to return to God. It's a little bit, to me, there's lots of examples of it. It's a powerful story, and so... um, very often we can find similar examples of this kind of thing in literature. The, the, the classic one that comes to mind is Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. Who, who he's, he's, a, he's a convict. He's escaped. He spends the night in the house of his bishop. 
uh, in the middle of the night, he realizes this is a great opportunity, so he steals all the silver and runs off, gets caught by the police the next day, dragged back to the bishop, uh, where the police expect the bishop to say, well, yes, that is my silver, and he did take it and, you know, take him away. Uh, the bishop sees what's going on, and instead of accusing Jean Valjean, he, he pretends that the silver was a gift. And he says, no, 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 you made a terrible mistake. You forgot to take the candlesticks as well. And he piles up all the rest of the silver and gives it to Jean Valjean. And, and, and so this is, this is, uh, there's something of that power of the Zacchaeus story in that story where, where that's what actually transforms and completely alters the course of Jean Valjean's life in that story is being uh, given a gift that he knows he did not deserve, um, that becomes the transforming moment. <laughs> um, because he's, aw- he's painfully aware of how little he deserves it, and when he's given the gift, um, it transforms him. <clears throat> so these are just two biblical examples. Uh, there are many, many others. We could connect the dots of many, many other examples or demonstrations of what it means that uh, transformation, radical transformation, follows undeserved blessing. That's this pattern that is in the Bible again and again. Radical transformation follows undeserved blessing. So in each passage, the gift precedes and is the cause of the transformation. The gift comes first. It has priority. So I want to look at this more closely, this idea of the gift coming first. A number of years ago, one of our pastors was preaching a sermon, and he said something. uh, It was just a a quick turn of phrase, but it has stuck with me, and I've been repeating it to everyone ever since, uh, anyone who would listen. So if you've been a student before and you've heard me say this over and over again, I'm sorry. Um, But he said, the Christian life is striving from approval, not for approval. Christian life is striving from approval, not for approval. Uh, this simple way of articulating the gospel has been for me something to hold on to tightly, something to, to repeat to myself again and again, because it's something that probably many of us reverse very, very easily. We flip the gospel on its head, and we make it about striving for approval rather than striving from approval. But I want to uh, dig into this a little bit and try to explore what it means. And I want to take the second part first, the, the part about striving for approval, which is something we probably, most of us, know something about. Many of us have firsthand experience striving for approval of other people. Um, maybe friends, maybe siblings, teachers, certainly parents, bosses, uh, I know a lot of parents that strive for the approval of their own kids. Uh, anyone whose opinion of us really matters to us. Maybe we love them. Maybe we admire them. Look up to them in some way. And to know that they approve of us and accept us would give us a sense of worth and legitimacy. Uh, and a sense of belonging that we actually long for. As I already alluded to, sometimes God is the one whose approval we are seeking. And we're unsure if we'll ever get it. So what is this experience like of, of striving for approval? First of all, <clears throat> there are contexts where it's necessary and maybe even healthy to strive for approval. Uh, society runs 
at least in theory, not, not always in practice, but it runs on a complex network of meritocracies, basically. Uh, in other words, you study hard for your test, you're more likely to get a good grade. You get a good grade, you gain the approval of your teacher. You work hard at your job and you do well, and you don't complain, you have a better chance of getting promoted than if you had slacked off. Um, you obey the law and you tend not to wind up in jail. Again, these things is not always true. Sometimes real injustice does occur. Um, but in general, there's a striving for some future evaluation. And it's not always a bad thing. Uh, in any case, these kinds of striving to achieve a desired outcome, while they're not bad in themselves, sometimes... Uh, there are other ways of striving for approval that can be terrible and life-crushing, uh, a burden to us. The striving for approval is not one thing. It's, it's a complicated and diverse thing. Um, <clears throat> but what are some of the things that, that, that all these examples of striving for approval have in common? And I think it's, it's basically three things. There's an expectation, there's a performance, and then there's an evaluation. I'm just going to go into a little bit more detail here. There's an expectation. It may be a clearly articulated expectation in which the rules are laid out. You're given a job description. It's clarified. A teacher tells you which chapters you're responsible for in an exam. Whatever. On the other hand, uh, the expectation might be totally vague and unarticulated. You may not even know quite what the expectation is, but you know there is one. Uh, some jobs are like this. Those are difficult. <laughs> uh, you may be striving to meet what you suspect is someone else's expectation without actually knowing. Uh, and maybe the expectation is just entirely self-imposed and nobody expects anything of you at all except yourself. Whatever the case, there's an experience of an expectation. Existentially, we sense and feel that something is required of us, whether it's real or imaginary or projected. Secondly, there's the striving. This is the performance. This is our attempt to live up to the expectation, whatever it is. We obey the law. We work hard for promotion. We study hard to take the exam. We volunteer as much as we can at our church. We always put our hand up. Uh, all the while with the knowledge that we will be evaluated. We work hard in the hopes of the future approval. We slave away in the kitchen hoping for that genuine compliment from our dinner guests. Uh, whatever it is. I'm just trying to throw out a bunch of examples. Hopefully I connected with you. <laughs> but, and then thirdly, there is the evaluation. Um, in situations like getting a promotion or getting a good grade on a test, the evaluation is obvious and unambiguous. You know where you stand. Sometimes it's even quantifiable. I got an 86 or whatever. Um, we find out whether we've performed well or not. But honestly, much of the approval we most long for, and this is, this is kind of what I'm building to, most of the approval we most long for, it's not at all clear when and if we've received it, and it's not quantifiable. We're never quite sure whether we've worked hard enough and measured up. Maybe our friends thought our lasagna was the best they'd ever had. Maybe they didn't. How would we know unless they tell us? What are they thinking about my dinner party? 
Are they talking about me? I want to know, but it would sound desperate to ask them. Uh, What if uh, the mother or father whose approval you long for uh, are emotionally distant and never say, well done, or I love you? You can get all A's, you can play varsity sports, you can get to the best college, you can get the best job, you can produce the most beautiful grandchildren, and still not know, do they really approve of me or not? How do you know if you've worked hard enough? Will you forever be not quite what they'd hoped for? Or will they eventually express their appreciation for you if you just try harder? Or have they always accepted you, they just don't know how to say it? This is the experience. I mean, I've, ta- I've spoken to so many people over the years and that fit into each one of these <laughs> descriptions. Um, <clears throat> Maybe my understanding of God is much like what I've just been describing in, in people's relationship with their parents. Uh, maybe my relationship with Him is similar. Uh, maybe I don't know whether he approves of me or not. Maybe I have a, a lingering and ominous sense that he doesn't. Uh, and all kinds of life experiences can, can contribute to that. But uh, it's very complicated. Uh, although with God, the performance is all of my life. And the evaluation is of cosmic proportions. So there's tremendous pressure when it comes to this feeling like I have to earn approval from God. Uh, everything is at stake, actually. So, I'm just going to make some observations about striving for approval. There's a particular chronology. Expectation, hard work, evaluation. But the whole thing is completely fraught with uncertainty. What is expected of us is often ambiguous. We are seldom sure if our efforts will ever be enough. And we sometimes don't even know when and if the evaluation will take place. Another observation is that the evaluation is in the future, which means the outcome is uncertain. We live in anticipation of being weighed on the scales, so to speak, but without assurance of any kind or approval that can be counted on. Which means that fear of failure and rejection plays a part in all of our efforts. Fear is always going to be a part of what motivates us and what uh, fills our minds and hearts as as we're striving for approval because it's all up to us and our exertion to legitimize ourselves and unless we're very deceived and arrogant uh, this is a terrifying thing (laughs) so fear as a motivator can be effective for a time but it's not a good lifelong source of purpose right so fear is great for motivating you to run away from tigers and uh, jump out of the way of trains. Uh, But in the lifelong quest for meaning and worth and legitimacy, it's not good. Fear doesn't really deliver. So having a deep desire, this is really just my last observation here, having a deep desire to hear well done, but living with no assurance that we will ever hear it, is painful. This is a painful existence. So that's striving for approval, and, and sadly, I've, I have a feeling that most of us can relate to, relate to that in some way. Striving for approval is sort of the normal way of the world. This is the default mode of, of operating in the world, for better or worse. 
let's remember that this is what the Christian faith is not. Uh, In fact, the gospel flips this chronology on its head. Rather, the Christian life is striving from approval, not for approval. So what does striving from approval mean? My aunt used to be a kindergarten teacher in Connecticut uh, for many, many years, and I remember her telling me a story once that was uh, both interesting and sad to me. She said that even just within a few days of the, the start of the year, she could often tell which kids in, their cla- in her class knew they were loved. In other words, uh, by watching their behavior and interactions with, each, with the other kids, she could tell whether their homes were places of kindness, attention, encouragement, and acceptance. Uh, homes where there still were rules and discipline, but where the parents' love for and interest in the child was never in question. Um, those kids stood out. These kids were much less likely to act out in attention-seeking ways because people have already taken an interest in them. They were much more willing to try new things without being afraid because they knew they didn't have to prove anything to their parents to be loved. And much quicker to recover from failures for the same reason. They were generally just happier and better adjusted children. Uh, I would say that this is because these kids, without being able to articulate it, were striving from approval. The awareness that they were loved already, accepted already, and cherished already, had become a firm foundation from which they could learn, grow, fail, recover, keep trying. So we can see this same kind of fruit, I think, in in mature marriages where a husband and wife are confident that they're known and loved by each other and are, as a result, free from many of the anxieties and insecurities of life. Not all of them, but uh, they've grown accustomed to living with another person with whom they do not have to prove anything. Uh, And this is an incredible gift, and it bears good fruit. So these illustrations are, I would say, they're significant and profound, but they are a pale imitation of the approval of God from which a Christian person is free to strive. Remember, I'm talking about striving from approval. What do I mean? Salvation through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ comes to the people of God as an unearned gift. It's such a valuable and all-encompassing gift that God expects us to respond with love and obedience. This is an appropriate expectation by God, given the weightiness of the gift. Every act of obedience in the Christian life, every faltering attempt to love, to be generous, to be merciful, uh, to be holy, all of it, is nothing more than a response to the gift that has already been given. By the Holy Spirit, the gift of Christ works on us, begins to transform us. It is slow work and we continue to fail daily, but Christians are people who keep on getting up again after falling on their faces because the Lord has already graciously accepted us. We're part of the family already and no... No amount of failings uh, 
causes us to, to be unadopted, right? We're adopted into God's family. So this response of obedience, the, this, the response of obedience and love that God expects of us, is in no way a payment for the gift of salvation. This would be just another, another version of striving for approval. We can never pay back God sufficiently for the gift of salvation. With what would we pay Him? Uh, we don't have anything that isn't already His. Uh, plus, we already have salvation. Why would we want to pay Him back for it? Um, in fact, in the Bible, our attempts to, to quote-unquote reimburse God after the fact are always interpreted by God as a rejection of the gift itself. You're trying to do something that's impossible, first of all, and second of all, all you're doing is proving that you never understood the gravity of the gift in the first place. You don't realize that it's priceless. You don't realize that it's impossible to pay back. Uh, and so if you try, all that shows is that you never understood it in the first place. This is um, really powerfully demonstrated in the in the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is when Jesus tells this story about the servant that goes to the master. The master is settling his debts, and he yes. He, all the servants are lining up and they're paying back what they owe to the master and one of the servants owes what in today's currency would be probably three billion dollars not payable it's not like nobody could even working their whole life could, could pay that back uh, and the the man begs and begs and begs for more time to be able to pay it back and the, and the master mercifully says you know what forget it I cancel it entirely you're free um, immediately the guy goes out and tries to round up his debtors and try to put the squeeze on them to get all the money he can. So he's, he's basically, he basically hasn't accepted the gift. He's still looking for money. He still thinks he can pay the master back. He still thinks he doesn't need to accept charity, right? And that's what gets him into trouble. He, he, uh, starts to strangle one of his debtors, throws him in jail, and when the master finds out, the master is furious with him and, ends up making him pay the whole debt back in the end. Uh, this is not a story about how uh, the servant, you screwed up because you didn't forgive this guy, so I'm going to punish you now because you screwed up. It's, it's, it's really a factor of if, if the servant had actually understood and accepted the gift that the master had given him, he would have forgiven the servant. The, the, his lack of forgiveness was an indication that he did not really accept the gift in the first place. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, that's just a, um, one example in the scriptures of how when you try, when you try to, when you try to buy your approval from God, uh, all that does, all that really is, is rejecting your salvation. <clears throat> Basically, it, it's a free gift or it's nothing at all. You accept it freely or you don't accept it. So, uh, living the Christian life as a response to salvation is not an attempt to pay God back, as I've just said. Rather, it's a sign that you have truly accepted the gift and understood the value and are beginning to be changed. So the gift comes first, but with the gift begins the process of transformation. So the transformation is actually the indication of the gift, the sign of the gift. When we strive from approval, there is an evaluation, but it has already taken place. It's not that there's no evaluation. 
there is an evaluation, but it's already happened. All of our sin and rebellion has been received full judgment in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, to, to continue sort of legal analogy, that the verdict is already in, the guilty sentence has already been given by God and served by Jesus. And there's no longer a case against us. Regardless of how I feel on any given day, I have been declared innocent. And I don't have the authority to contradict that evaluation. And neither does anybody else. Because it's God's evaluation. The wonderful sermon that many of you have probably heard by Tim Keller. Uh, I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 4. And it's called Blessed Self-Forgetfulness, where he really he sort of digs into this. You know, Paul doesn't consider himself to be judged by any human court, and he doesn't even judge himself. So even, even if I think I'm terrible and unforgivable, that actually has no authority. It's only how God sees me through the work of Christ that has the authority. I could be having a bad day. That doesn't actually determine my identity before God. Uh, it's Christ that does. <clears throat> It's not that God no longer cares about sin. Holiness still matters. God still demands righteousness. But only Jesus has ever lived a life of perfect obedience to God. So because God loves us and wants us back in his family, God has given us the credit for the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And this is what theologians often call the great exchange. Jesus takes responsibility for the guilt of our sin, and we get his righteousness in return. And so that God, it's not just that we are sort of out of the red with God and we're off the hook and free from punishment. It's much more. It's actually we are viewed with approval by God because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been given to us. Not our own. Um, That's what the Bible means when it says it's credited to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul refers back to that. Um, The fact that Abraham believed God was credited to him as righteousness. Was Abraham a perfectly righteous man? No. He demonstrated that (laughs) a little later. But uh, the righteousness that he did have was given to him by God. So Christians have not just been declared innocent, but we've been declared pleasing. Uh, We are a delight to God right now, even as Jesus Christ was, was a delight to his Father. Uh, observations about this. This is a very different chronology. Uh, the evaluation is in the past, not the future. It's already taken place. And the result of this evaluation is complete approval and acceptance from God. You could say that Christ has passed the test with flying colors and we get to enjoy the security of being embraced by the Lord of the universe with Jesus' righteousness as our own. God's approval of us is final. Nothing will change it. Which means there is such a thing as assurance and peace available to us. Um, Radically different than than when we're striving for some future approval that's tenuous and unknown. right? Um, There is still striving. The Christian faith is not opposed to effort. That's been a, I've heard that quote many times. It's just opposed to earning. <laughs> it's opposed to earning and not effort. But the striving from approval is not motivated by fear and uncertainty, like the striving for approval. 
There is no future unknown, tenuous, possibly devastating evaluation awaiting us. Uh, Rather, we are free to be motivated by thankfulness to God, by love for God, and by joy in what He has done. Those are our motivations. If we take seriously what God has given us in our salvation, like the, our, our motivations for all the hard work that we do, all the um, all of our attempts to please Him in whatever field we're in or whatever our experience, all of it is uh, can be offered to Him uh, from thanksgiving, love, and joy. To put it differently, through His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has made us into a new creation. So we have a new status as adopted children. And the whole of the Christian life, with all of its challenges, is simply living out who we already are in God's eyes. It's living out our new identity. So if you've ever been told to to act your age, has anyone ever been told to act their age? Is it, is, is it, a, is it fun to be? Just me. Thank you, Joshua. It's not always fun to be told to act your age. Um... But what it means is that you're old enough to know better. Start acting with a maturity that is appropriate to the number of years you've been on earth. You've been on earth for quite a few years. Start acting in accordance with that. In a sense, every exhortation, particularly in Paul's letters, I think, every exhortation is really telling the people of God to act their identity. Like, you are already this. Now just be it. Do it. Um, Start looking like who you are. Actually choose to live who you already are in Christ. Flee the life of sin. Because you are dead to sin already. Um, your sinful selves already died with Christ on the cross. So stop sinning. Uh, and you see this, I think, played out at, um, in, in sort of the pattern of lots of Paul's letters. Uh, very often Paul leads with some heavy theology telling the people who they are in Christ. And the significance of who Christ is. And then there's a big therefore. And then he transitions to the way you all should be living. Given everything you just heard about who you are. (laughs) Um, You already have God's approval. Now strive from it. Make every effort to live it. I think this also ties in with what the Bible refers to as the fear of God. And this is a much misunderstood thing in the Bible, and it, and it rubs a lot of us the wrong way. What do you mean we're supposed to fear God? Uh, surely not. But fear in, the, Bible, in the, the biblical sense has everything to do with whose approval matters most to you. Or whose disapproval do you most dread? Who do you fear? Whose opinion or evaluation do you most care about? Whose good opinion are you most afraid of losing? And who do you not fear? In other words, whose opinion does not concern you at all? Um, not, you know, not that this is not that this is autobiographical or anything, but you remember. In, I'm sure some of you can remember in high school, maybe going to a party, walking into a room full of people, and immediately, if you're as self-conscious as I was, you know exactly who you want to impress in that room and who you really don't care about impressing. Right? There's we tend to divide the room up to be like, well, there's the, the jocks over there, and there's the, the theater folks there, and there's the computer nerds, and there's like the ironic artists over there. And 
immediately it's the ironic artist that I really care. It's their opinion that I care about. Uh, if they thought I was a loser, that would be devastating. I don't really care what the jocks think about me, honestly. I don't fear the jocks, but I fear the ironic, smart artists. Right. So, um, this is. It's ideal. It's husband. ideal. Yeah. No, actually, it's a hypothetical. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Uh, you see, you see my point though. Like, what, in terms of fearing in, in a biblical sense, has to do with like who, you know, who does it matter to you? What they think, you know. Um, in the Bible, fear of the Lord is much, much more than simply being terrified of what God might do to you. Uh, it's it's to take seriously the gravity of who He is and the seriousness of the things He tells you to do. So, to fear God always includes obedience. But not simply obedience from fear of punishment. Fear of the Lord is a deep desire to please Him, to be in good relationship with Him, and it's an unwillingness to jeopardize that relationship by rebelling against Him. That's what fear of the Lord is. Uh, it's His opinion that matters most to me. Everyone else on earth can think I'm a, an idiot for believing in Him, and yet I will still believe in You know, think of the Psalms that talk about that. People mock me day and night for putting my hope in you, Lord. But I put my hope in you. That's fear of the Lord. It's saying, I fear you, Lord, more than the opinions and attitudes of everybody else who thinks I'm stupid for trusting you. Um, so fearing God and loving God are really different sides of the same coin. It's, it's the desire to please the one we love. The desire to maintain a good relationship with the one we love and who made us. Uh, it's his opinion that matters most to us. And, amazingly, uh, the New Testament teaches us that if we are in Christ, His opinion of us is always good. We're in Christ. And so, fearing God in the, in the, in the, in the context of everything the New Testament teaches us has everything to do with trusting what Jesus has done for you. It's really effective. It's done. It's finished. This means that uh, the Christian who is still a sinner, and that's everybody, can live with a clear conscience. If what the Bible says is true, then to belong to Jesus and still suffer from a guilty conscience is absurd, even though we still do it. <laughs> it's, an abs- it's, it's an absurd thing to have a guilty conscience if we're in Christ, if we belong to Christ. If we really believe what he said, it's I, I, this sort of stupid illustration came to me while I was mowing the lawn the other day, and um, I printed it in small print just so that I would maybe not read it. <laughs> but now I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. Um, we're so used to feeling guilty, and we're so used to to having a guilty conscience for whatever, and feeling. Uh, insufficient and feeling like we have to prove ourselves to go. It's just like a groove that we're stuck in so much of the time. So many people are stuck in that groove. Um, it's easy to forget how absurd it is that we have a guilty conscience. <laughs> it's a little bit like, um, people know their English history, know who Guy Fawkes is. Guy Fawkes was the guy who tried to blow up Parliament in 1605. Uh, the plot was discovered. He was arrested and, and like, tortured and, and, and executed and then um, the English people burn him in effigy every year um, 
interesting tradition in Britain. But uh, imagine now if I present myself at Scotland Yard and say the plot to blow up Parliament and throw this nation into chaos was a terrible, terrible thing. I'm turning myself in. I have to pay for my crimes. What sort of response would I get, do you think? Um, They would think I was crazy. Uh, This crime was committed and was punished more than 400 years ago. It's history. There's no possible way I could convince a judge that I was responsible for it. Uh, There's simply no case against me. That's how absurd. (laughs) That's the level of absurdity that we should feel when we experience a guilty conscience in in terms of being in Christ. Because there is no case against us. Uh, The verdict was was given and the sentence paid for even more than 400 years ago. Um, And I'm standing in God's approval now, fully. Um... Now for my partial book reports that you've all been just waiting for here. Um, We've talked about how, uh, for the Christian, the gift of salvation is truly a gift, something that comes to us by grace alone. We've also talked about God's expectation of a response to that gift. Uh, For Zacchaeus, to go on cheating people after being honored by Jesus would not have been the right response, right? Um, He, he, we could say that he, he, didn't fully appreciate how, how amazing it was that Jesus had honored him. Um, <clears throat> this raises an important question, though. Um, can a gift be a gift if something is expected in return? This is where we start to engage with like what is meant by grace and what is not meant by grace. Um, to most contemporary Western people, uh, if, you're, if you're asked, is a gift still a gift if you're expect if you if the recipient is expected to give something back in return, most most of us would probably say, no, that's not really a gift. Um, we want to say what makes a gift a gift is that uh, I do not have to give anything back to the giver after receiving it. Um, as, we be, as we bring this assumption to our reading of the Bible, though, particularly to Paul's letters, in which he continually uses the words gift and grace, uh, the words that are the Greek words that are translated in gift, gift and grace, uh, we begin to see that the concept of gifts was different in the New Testament period than it is today, and, and slightly more complicated. Um, and so, the real the point of this book, I'll introduce it in just a second. But uh, John Barclay, he's re- he's really trying to make the argument that if Paul has a particular set of cultural assumptions about gift giving, and he uses gift-giving as a metaphor to illustrate what God has done in Christ, then we need to understand as much as we possibly can about what giving gifts was like in Paul's day in order to understand what his theology of, of, of salvation is. And uh, this is one of the things that John Barclay is... Uh, nope. Engaging with. So this is, the, this is his very large, more scholarly work, and then... Paul and the Power of Grace is this smaller book, which kind of is a distillation of a lot of his ideas, uh, as well as some additional thoughts. Uh, I found this to be a very, very helpful book. Um, if you have questions about this book, you should probably ask Joshua, not me. Um, but uh, very, very, very um, thoughtful and astute scholar. Um, 
he explores the question, basically, what, is, what does grace mean to Paul? What does free gift mean to Paul? Free in what sense? Uh, Dave Friedrich, who is a, one of our former colleagues, did a lecture on this, on this book, or dealing with the ideas in this book um, about a year ago, probably a little more. Um, and so that's, if you want to dig into it more, you, should, uh, you can chase down that lecture. But uh, in Barclay's research, examining biblical and extra-biblical writings, uh, he identifies six of what he calls perfections of grace. Uh, and by perfections of grace, he means characteristics of a gift that make it truly a gift in someone's mind. What, what, what is the essential thing about a gift to you? Uh, what feature, if it was removed, would render a perfect gift no longer perfect? And he's arguing that different ancient writers consider very different characteristics to be the essential, uh, the essential thing about a gift. So there's a diversity of opinions about what a gift is and what it's not. And the word grace is very much part of that same body of words. Grace and gift are sometimes used interchangeably. So Barclay uh, does this in order to make the point that when people refer to grace they do not necessarily all have the same perfections in mind. In other words, they don't, all, they don't have the same features in mind about what makes grace perfect. My notions about what makes the giving of a gift perfect might not be the same as yours. Uh, the various perfections can coexist in one person's concept of grace, but they, uh, they don't necessarily overlap at all. I may believe very firmly in three of the six and reject all the others. Anyway, the question is, what perfections are central to Paul's teaching about God's gift. And I'm just going to go through them really quick right, here, right now. Uh, the, the perfections are superabundance, singularity, priority, incongruity, efficacy, and non-circularity. Now these are... Sounds like a real drag, those words. But, um, but um, they are... I think very helpful to have these categories in mind when we think of what does Paul mean when he's talking about about grace. Superabundance simply means uh, the gift is of a huge scale, overflowing and extravagant, rich and generous beyond compare. So a truly perfect gift is a superabundant gift. That's what that perfection means. Singularity. The singularity of a gift means that benevolence and blessing are all the giver ever gives. To bless and to give gifts is the sole task of the giver. Continual, unwavering uh, benevolence. If the giver ever offers judgment or discipline, their, the, their gifts are not perfect. So this is one attitude that in some ancient writings people have towards God. It's actually an attitude that lots of contemporary people have towards God. priority number three means that the gift is given in an unsolicited way the giver alone initiates the interaction and is in no way responding to requests uh, or gifts from the recipient so there's no payment in advance so to speak this is basically what I mean by the gifts come first Um, he just has a fancier way of saying it um Fourth, incongruity. Now this means that the goodness of the gift does not match up with the worthiness of the recipient. There's an imbalance there. In other words, the recipient does not deserve the gift in any way, and the giver 
is not beholden to bless the recipient for their good behavior. The gift is not a reflection of someone's worthiness. Uh, it's given despite their lack of worthiness. So this is, this is part of the, the imbalance of what an incongruous gift is. And Barclay mentions that in, in, in ancient contexts, uh, it was often considered appropriate to give gifts only to deserving people. Only to the people they were deemed worthy. Maybe they had good reputations. Maybe they were uh, honorable citizens. Um, these were the people that were worth giving gifts to, um, both because they deserved it, but also because they were the ones that are likely to give gifts back. There was a very, a, a lot of, um, the concept of giving in the ancient world was very reciprocal. There was a lot of um, reciprocity going back. If you receive a gift, you give a gift. Um, fifth, efficacy. This means that the gift actually accomplishes something tangible. It brings about a permanent change for good. Uh, it's the cause of everything else that follows. And then lastly, non-circularity. This means that for a gift to be perfect, absolutely nothing in the way of return should be expected. There should be no circle of reciprocity at all for it to be a real gift. If the recipient has to reimburse the giver or is beholden in any way to the giver, then it is not a perfect gift uh, a perfect gift is a gift with no strings attached. So, again, I'm not saying that I agree with all of those. I'm not saying that anyone should agree with all of those. But these are just different notions that Barclay, uh, different kind of uh, definitions of what's most important about grace that different um, people have had at different times. And uh, <clears throat> I think it, it actually is quite helpful as we, as we come to the Bible to keep these things in mind. Uh, which of these perfections apply to the biblical concept of grace and which do not? So, is God's gift of salvation super abundant? That's number one. Yes. <laughs> um, we can argue about this as much as you want afterwards. I'm just going to say what I think is true. Um, the wealth of our inheritance in Jesus is staggering, and the price of giving it to us is unimaginably high to us. Uh, the gift is bigger and more glorious than we can possibly comprehend in our present state. Uh, David confesses that his cup runneth over with blessings from God. Paul in Romans 10 says... The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Paul uses that word riches, I think almost a dozen times in the book of Romans alone. The riches, the riches, the riches that is the part of our inheritance in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. These are all examples, I mean, as you could go on forever, but about the gift of God is super abundant and it's overflowing and rich and extravagant. What about singularity? Is blessing all that God has for everyone? Uh, is he an all-excusing grandfather figure giving us an eternal thumbs up? That's kind of what, <laughs> that's a very crude way of putting uh Barclay's term singularity, but no, according to the Bible, God's desire is to bless, but that's not all he does. God is a holy God before whom there will one day be a reckoning. Sin cannot stand in his presence. He is a judge, not just a yes man. 
It's only by being in Christ that any of us can approach Him at all, ever. So His holiness is still real. Um, yeah, sin and evil and suffering still uh, anger Him. So this notion of grace, I think the, the singularity as a perfection of grace, I think needs to be uh, rejected, even though it's very, very popular way of thinking of God today. You think of, I think whenever, very often contemporary people, whenever they hear anything that sounds remotely uh, judgmental coming from the mouth of God, they say, well, no, 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 that's not really God. God is love, which means that he accepts everything. Right? Uh, what kind of a God would tell me something I don't want to hear? Um, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, it, but it, this is pretty close to how, how a lot of people view God today here. Why, why would he love me? Why would he, why would he tell me anything I don't want to hear? Um, what about priority? Uh, as I've already hinted, I think priority is, is a, uh, a really important perfection of grace. The gift of salvation was God's idea. It is a result of God taking initiative calling us we did not start the conversation Um, when a person cries out to God for the first time it's because God has already been speaking to them so anything we do any prayer, there's a way of understanding prayer all prayer is a response to a conversation God has already started with us we are, by virtue of being human beings we are responders to God uh, so the priority of grace is, is closely linked to, to the to incongruity, uh, the fourth category. This is another perfection of grace that Paul embraces militantly. God did not look down at humanity and decide to offer salvation because of all the worthiness he saw. Um, all have fallen short of the glory of God, we're told. Paul writes in Romans 5, uh, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is just, a, it's really worth sitting with that. Um, this is uh, Christ comes to us when we still hate God <laughs> That's those are the people that, that, that Jesus comes to uh, and it's the gift of his death and resurrection that, that, that transformed people from enemies to sons and daughters <clears throat> the incongruity between the gift and the unworthiness of people who receive it. This is, I think, essential, essential biblical teaching, and Paul Paul hammers on it again and again. The fifth one, efficacy. Yes, Christ, death. I mean, there's all kinds of nuance to all of these, but but I'm just speaking in general terms. Uh, Christ's death is effective in canceling sin, and his resurrection is effective in ushering us into a new life. So this is what I've been talking about in terms of the transformation that comes with receiving what Christ has done for us. Uh, Barclay says, The grace of God is transformative, given without boundaries or conditions, in order to remake its recipients. In other words, the gift has power, and remaking us is God's goal. Lastly, non-circularity. This is, in a sense, the most complicated 
Barclay points out that in Paul's day, gifts were very seldom given without any expectation of a return. So a return of some kind was almost always expected when you gave a gift. And reciprocity was sort of built into how society functioned. This is how you you formed bonds with other people, is by developing like a, a, a circle of reciprocity. Um, this does not necessarily mean that everyone grant, uh, granted with a gift would return it a gift of equal value. It doesn't necessarily mean to to return a gift in kind. This is uh, a really wonderful book uh, by Peter Lightheart called Gratitude and Intellectual History, and he's dealing with a lot of the same issues, uh, but has a, a bit of a wider... Um, throws the net a bit wider in terms of uh, extra biblical literature and sort of different concepts of of what gift has meant and what gratitude has meant um, throughout history. So this is a really interesting book. I would I would recommend it as well. <clears throat> but um, I think we see in Paul's understanding uh, this idea of reciprocity is still there when it comes to salvation. So the idea that the gift of Christ, with all that it entails, would be a gift without any strings attached. Is ridiculous. Uh, look at the the superabundance, the priority, the incongruity, and the efficacy of this gift. Uh, of course, there are strings attached to the gift of Christ. Uh, by saving us, Christ has called us to participate in a new life. It's a little bit like if God had freed the Israelites from slavery and then said, you're free now. Just go, 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 go live your life. Like, no. <laughs> he, he, they were freed from slavery in order to be a new kind of people to him. Uh, so to pursue this new life with all our strength is not an arbitrary uh, payment for being saved after the fact. Of course not. Uh, neither is it a return gift of equal value or cost. Of course not. There's no symmetry between God's grace and our joyful response. They're not equivalent things. Uh, we cannot return a gift in kind. Uh, our response is simply the appropriate outflowing of the gift itself. And so, uh, near the end of the book, Barclay uh, summarizes Paul's understanding of salvation as a free but demanding gift. <laughs> Uh, it's absolutely free and comes to us by no virtue of our own. And yet, if we receive it, we uh, are called to change. So <clears throat> he points out that in, Paul, that in Paul's days, uh, in Paul's day, sorry, gifts were given to establish a social bond between people. Uh, so to give a gift was the best way to enter into a relationship with another person and a relationship in which the other person would respond. And so. Um, this is essentially what God is doing with his people when he frees them from slavery. This is what Jesus does with us uh, in the gift of salvation. It's establishing a relationship with us forever. So, um, we find ourselves bound to the giver. Our lives are not our own. Uh, we are beholden to him in every way, forever. And this is good. This is not, a, this is not like going to jail. Um, so, <clears throat> to conclude... Um, when I was when I was younger, I, I struggled to get excited about my faith. I think probably my teenage years, in part because I conceived of salvation as being rescued from something. I didn't really think of it as anything more than that. 
uh, it is being rescued from something, um, from darkness. It's being rescued from eternal separation from God, alienation from God. But if this is all there is to salvation, essentially just being let off the hook with God, uh, then this leaves us without a lot to do or care about. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until later that I began to think of salvation as being rescued for something. Rescued in order to live a new kind of life. One of love and of service to God. The kind of life that God calls us to was part of the plan of salvation from the very beginning. So our response to God's gift of salvation was his plan uh, from the very start. And I want to close just by reading this passage from Ephesians. I'm not going to get into it in, in, at all, really. I'm just going to read it. But, but uh, in this passage... Paul is hammering home this point that we're saved by grace. That's the, that's the gift, this amazing gift, through faith, which is not, in Paul's understanding, a work. Faith is basically the bankruptcy that we have, acknowledging our bankruptcy. Um, Schaefer, Francis Schaeffer talked about our faith is the empty hands that we offer to God. And so it's not a work. It's not, it's not something we're, we're giving to God and then we get salvation uh, it's just the only way in which we could receive a gift. It's empty hands. So, uh, so saved by grace, through faith, for good works. <laughs> and this is God, this is God's plan from the beginning to make us into, uh, fruitful, joyful, productive servants and sons and daughters. So, uh, this is Ephesians 2. <clears throat> nope. Um, uh, verses 4 through 10. And I'll just, I'll just read this passage and then I'll be done. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, that's where I will end for those of you who haven't been here before to a lecture um, we have a discussion time which is a time for questions or comments uh, any thoughts that you want to share and I will just coordinate that for as long as I can and then um, if you need to leave right now that is fine duck out That's there's uh, nobody's feelings are hurt uh, but if you want to stay you can and uh, so we'll just throw it up for, for the conversation now any thoughts? Would you explain again, when you were talking about the master who forgave his servant debt and then the, the servant didn't forget mm. his debtor's debt, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
you said that it wasn't because he didn't forgive the circumstance? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to struggle to remember where this actually is exactly. Anybody know off the top of the head where? Um, I think I think what what I was trying to get at is that it's not as if the servant's refusal to forgive the other servant was just a little infraction, like you broke a rule. It was a sign that he had not taken seriously the generosity of the master to him. Because it's it's clear, the master says, you know, I forgave you all that debt. Should not have you forgiven the debt? Which was comparatively tiny. Uh, And so the master clearly expects that if you've received this kind of generosity, you should show it to other people. You should, you should, you should, even like I have treated you, you should treat the people that owe you. And so, and there's various hints, I think, in that parable that show that that first servant hasn't really accepted that the master has forgiven him. He's still he's still trying to earn his way back. Um, he j- just the fact that he goes out and and uh, starts to squeeze money out of all his debtors means that he's he's acting like a man who's still in debt himself. He's acting like a man who is who is looking for uh, who's in financial trouble, right? When he's not. All the debts have been forgiven. Uh, he doesn't ask. Uh, the the, um, the servant doesn't ask to be forgiven. He promises that if he has more time, he'll pay it back. And then the master disregards that and says, I, I cancel your debt. But he never even acknowledges that that's happened. And so I think, I mean, maybe, the, I mean, um, I, this may be just my take on, the, on that parable, and I'm open to, to having pushback on that. But I think that, I think the main problem there is that this guy has not actually acknowledged the depth of his need. And so he doesn't acknowledge the the weight of that gift. There, therefore, he's, he's, he's still, he still sees himself as being a guy who earns his way and isn't beholden to anybody. And so he's strutting around still treating everybody else by the same standards. And uh, Whereas if he had really accepted the fact that the only way I could ever have gotten out from under that debt was for it to be forgiven. Right. Then he would have forgiven the other servant. <laughs> I guess that, that's a, yeah. a very fine line. Yeah. Like, uh, yes, I agree that he... But to me, it was more like he doesn't even understand the depth of the gifts he was given. Mm-hmm. So he... he compartmentalize that mm-hmm. so to speak and mm-hmm. then um, he doesn't understand that forgiveness I guess it's saying the same thing mm-hmm. because of the way he reacts to the people that owe him money yeah. which is really nothing yeah could have could have realistically been paid back right, in, in, right. In a, yeah but um, but I mean it's tricky because there there is a connection even in the Lord's Prayer Jesus makes between uh, being forgiven by God and forgiving others. Right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. 
forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So there's clearly, and I think what's what's happening both there and in that parable is that it's like, um, you know, receiving grace and giving grace are are supposed to be completely connected. Yes. Um, they, you know, if we actually are receiving grace from God, we should be people that give it. Um, and if we, it's not to say that just to forgive to forgive people that have hurt us it should just be easy for us. Right. Uh, no, but if we are, if we absolutely refuse to try, that is a sign. I think as a, a uh, an indication that perhaps we have not really uh, embraced the grace of God to us. Right. We've not really understood the, the depth of our own need for forgiveness. And okay. I think the way you're explaining now that I do understand when you said that we're not accepting the gift then. I, yeah. I, I wasn't getting that. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Okay, now I understand the way you just said that. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you for the question. It's good to clarify because, yeah, I, I sort of talked about that parable off the cuff a little bit and I really, I was, it's, it was confused myself a little bit. So, yeah. Any other thoughts? Joshua. Uh, yeah, thanks for this. I, um, I, I was re- I was actually reading a different essay uh, in, a, in a, like an edited book from John Barclay today, mm-hmm. and he he started. Of course, just, you were. Uh, <laughs> 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 so we did. <laughs> but uh, well, he he begins by talking about a friend asking a question, and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts. I'm not really sure how to think about it, but it, it's sort of connected to this idea. of uh, like the incongruity, the mismatch, mm-hmm. and then also this idea that it's there is a response. It's not a uh, an equal response. But mm-hmm. anyway, a friend asked him, "What's the uh, a friend asked him uh, what's the opposite of giving?" And his initial response was to say receiving. Mm-hmm. But then the more he thought about it, he's like, "I don't think it's right. I think it's keeping." Uh, mm-hmm. The opposite of giving. Is keeping and just thinking about if God thinking about more how it plays out kind of in our lives uh, as we if we receive a gift um, and uh, mm. what what do we do with the gifts we receive like what, what what is the goal what is that not just giving back to God but mm-hmm. giving to others anyway I just yeah. was sort of struck mm. by it. I don't totally know what the Anyway, I know you've done a lot of thinking on gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's sort of open to anybody. I just sort of yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's an interesting. It just sort of I was like, oh, I've never thought about that. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just put it out there. It might go nowhere, but uh, it might end up in a future lecture. Of mine too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts? I'm good. I think we we can often do taking in a way in which taking is related to keeping. Um, because giving requires somebody else to, to give it to you, and so when we want it, we, we try to take it and then end up keeping it. Um, so I don't know, maybe the t- together the opposite of giving and receiving is taking and keeping. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what I was going to say. I'll awesome. talk about taking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, it's. Um, In a sense, if you're if you're uh, you believe that everything you have is a gift from God, like you don't have anything that originated in yourself, 
yeah. all your capacities, all your gifts, everything. Um, so that's been so. In other words, everything is given. Um, means that to refuse to give is to keep, is to hold on to hold on to a blessing and not not share it or not allow it to do its job of, of, to be passed along to, to other people. Um, this I'm just trying to think. Of it. Maybe if I just start talking, it will eventually connect. Um, there's a <laughs> the Lightheart book is really interesting on that um, because he talks about circles of reciprocity in the ancient world and how it's not that the New Testament repudiates this idea of, of gift and return. It's just that, um, for instance, he says, uh, when Jesus says, when you, when you give, or when you invite someone to your house, invite the people that basically can't pay you back. Invite the people that don't, you know, that will not be able to return, because then your reward will be in heaven. That's really, really interesting, because so he's assuming that there's, he's speaking into a culture of reciprocity, in which people invite rich people over so that they'll get invited to the rich person's house. It always says that they've created a bond with an advantageous person. And what what Lightheart is saying is that there's still a reciprocity, but it's not the tight circle between people. It's a reciprocity that's opened infinitely to God. So in other words, the reward, you, know, you, you give to somebody and get nothing in return, and God gives back to you. <laughs> so in other words... Um, and so this idea of keeping, holding on to, to blessings that we have, rather than receiving blessings from God and giving them, giving them to others, spreading, you know, um, whatever that happens to be, uh, is, I think Paul and, and Jesus are both getting at this, like, actually, no, when we, when we are free with what we've been given, there's still a reciprocity but it's only because God sees. <laughs> it's not a reciprocity. It's between me and another person necessarily. Um, that, was, that was, yeah. I don't know. You want to come back on that? I'm, I'm not really sure what. Um, uh, no, what else to I, make I, I don't it. know. Yeah. That's good to think. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm just sort of. I think. I mean, in terms of in terms of in terms of Thanksgiving, and I a thought that I've. Um, had when talking about gratitude yeah. is that um, I've distinguished between gratitude and thanksgiving. It, part of it's just a semantic thing. So they're obviously interchangeable sometimes, but but for the sake of argument, gratitude often means an internal emotion. Um, I feel gratitude. Um, gratitude can be expressed or not. In other words, it can be I can say thank you to somebody, and that's an outward expression of internal gratitude. Um, thanksgiving is intrinsically an outward expression. Uh, you're giving thanks to somebody else, uh, as opposed to what I would say is thanksgiving, which is <laughs> feeling really grateful when we're talking to anybody. Never, it, which in large part, contemporary view of gratitude is just that. It's it's not about necessarily saying thank you to people or to God. It's about feeling gratitude 
keeping a gratitude journal and reminding myself how blessed I am and it'll make me healthier and happier and more psychologically balanced and my blood pressure will go down because gratitude is good for us, right? And that's essentially thanks-keeping. <laughs> you mean, trying, trying, to keep, trying to think of all the things you're thankful for, but it has nothing to do necessarily with acknowledging someone outside yourself has met a need because that takes humility. <laughs> it's much easier to... to, to, to um, focus on the internal emotions Mm -hmm. so in that sense the keeping it the the giving and the keeping is interesting when it comes to responding to a gift Mm -hmm. i can i can give thanks or i can keep thanks um yeah i don't know i like the image the image you were saying the later you said circles yeah or i guess and then even barclay's word of things and in God's yeah. in, we don't see the rest of the, the circle of that because we're limited and the circle may be huge yeah. but actually God has it all you know it yeah. Is, yeah, it's really interesting it's really encouraging Jesus thought actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. Question regarding, um, you know, believing the evaluation is in, mm-hmm. and like experiencing the evaluation, um, and and I guess how would you, um, yeah, how would you kind of address that? I mean, I know that's like the work of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, but in my experience, it's a it's a fluctuating. Sure. Yeah. Sense yeah. or evaluation, evaluation experience, mm-hmm. um, which requires faith when the evaluation is less clear to me. Yeah. Um, but I guess what what thoughts might you have on reflecting on, mm-hmm. on that? Um, yeah. Um, I think there's many, many, many things. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a huge but, question. Yeah. 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 No. <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, it's a super relevant question. Um, I think this is sort of what Schaefer talks about in his book True Spirituality as, as being a moment-to-moment awareness of, of the forgiveness of Christ. Like a moment-to-moment awareness so that as I go through life making mistakes left and right and maybe hurting people or being prideful and falling on my face, all this stuff, you know, spirituality in Christian terms is all about having a moment-to-moment awareness that what Jesus has done applies to this right now. Mm-hmm. And this right now. <laughs> and, you know, uh, being able to apply apply it, which I think, for those of us for whom that does not come intuitively, or maybe, maybe haven't been walking with the Lord for very long or whatever, it's a discipline. Yeah. And it has to do with reminding yourself what's, what is true in opposition to what you feel is true. Right. <laughs> and, and being able to speak to yourself. Yeah. You know, I was talking to uh, Martin about this the other day. The psalmist says, you know, yeah. well, wh- why my soul are you downcast within me? It's like the psalmist is speaking truth to himself. So listening to himself, he's speaking to himself with something he knows is true in the midst of a time of real darkness. And, and uh, mm-hmm. so, so I think we have to do that all the time. It's because of this, Lord Jesus, that you came. It's because of this <laughs> that you came. 
and yet again and again and again. And obviously that's the work of the Holy Spirit yeah. for mm-hmm. that to um, to become in, internal to who we are. And it feels very mechanical to have to remind yourself every five seconds. But 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 it's that's not an unspiritual thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> to remind right. us of what of what God has told us is true every minute. <laughs> to like remind ourselves. Um, I think I think um, entering humbly into communion, mm-hmm. like the Lord's the Lord's Supper, is a huge. There's a reason why why God why Christ gave us this ritual to practice. So that we would not forget, and not forget in a very tangible, physical, you know, way, um, that this has been done for you, and um, I, I think there's there's a million a million things I think, but it's but it's um, yeah. Any, please, anybody else? I mean, this I think this is something that. Everybody has their own version of this question and, and own experiences and own ways of of uh, fighting this battle. How do I know that I'm accepted by God when I feel so unforgiven? <laughs> or I feel so beyond the um, the reach of God? And, and there's a there's a reason why Paul says, uh, you know. We need to have the power to grasp the, the yeah. love of God. You know, yeah. there, there's it actually takes the power of the Holy Spirit for that to to be a um, coherent reality in our minds and our hearts and our souls. Just for us, for that just to be internal to who we are. That's the work of the Spirit. But we want to be doing things that are in step with the Spirit to, to help ourselves. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? It's a, it's a really important one. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, this maybe is a slightly different question, but mm-hmm. or slightly different take. But um, maybe you were asking, like, how do I feel forgiven? But my pastor one time said something about feeling loved by God and and how we we sometimes like take our circumstances like, oh, you know, this is going terrible. I don't have mm-hmm. what I want in my life. This mm-hmm. terrible thing has happened. How could God love me? And he and he sort of I think he had sort of had this self revelation, um, you know, from God that he was sharing in a sermon, and it was like. Um, you know, my love for you is settled by what Jesus did on the cross. Like mm-hmm. that, your current circumstances has not, no bearing on mm-hmm. my love for you. My love mm-hmm. for you is settled, and um, so that's really stuck with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, feeling forgiven is maybe slightly different, but yeah, um, just sort of remembering that yeah, if this took place in the past, this is settled. I could not have done anything mm-hmm. greater to show my love for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah, that's helpful. That's part of it. The, just the, the idea of the finished work of Christ mm-hmm. is done, mm-hmm. um, and we can rely on that. Um, I think. I mean, going back a little bit to your um, to your question, Taylor. Also, I think it's it may require really hard work, just into our own lives and our own histories and our own, you know. Um, as to why is it that I find that this is so hard? You know, what what is my what in my life has influenced my view of God here? You know, what, you know which is which is very personal to each person. You know, like what are, what are the obstacles to really believing that grace applies to me um, that are particular to my story? And so, um, 
that may mean we need to talk about a lot of things we'd rather not talk about. <laughs> but that's part of it. I mean, that's part of it. And it's not as if there's like, go to church for your spirituality and then like, go see a counselor, I guess, or something like this. Is, it's all, it's all part of, part of, um, you know, your whole humanity. But yeah, Christina. Yeah, I was just going to say, experiencing grace from people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Sees us and treats us. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We 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 get get a picture of the grace of God and the love of God through through somebody else, and suddenly it becomes more plausible. Like, oh, it's like that, yeah. but better. You know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I think what's been helpful to me too in this uh, in my wrestlings um, with assurance. Yeah. Essentially. Is, is thinking like too that the, the enemy is actually after mm-hmm. my sense of security mm-hmm. um, for God, and and so to, to know that it's just not like uh, it's not just me mm-hmm. creating this sense of insecurity. There's a kind of spiritual warfare that mm-hmm. to it. Um, I don't know. It's been it's been helpful mm-hmm. to add that dimension mm-hmm. as well, yeah. and to identify lies and call them lies. Yes, you know, the way of Yeah. I was thinking, I wonder if there's something to uh, Zacchaeus' own conversion, mm-hmm. salvation, coming to salvation to his home, where, you know, his, who he is and his scoundrelness <laughs> is fully known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And yet, like, <laughs> He's a public What, what his, his response yeah. is an indication that God's mercy and grace and Jesus' love for him is also simultaneously fully known mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I, I think it's helpful to in our own sort of mental chatter to be like, Am I am I just hearing that you're a scoundrel? You're a scoundrel. You're mm-hmm. a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Or or am I also hearing, you know, like I'm coming to your house for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think when, like, when it's the truth is, both of those things are going to come together mm-hmm. when, it, when it's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. and like when Jesus is making, when He's there to be experienced, like we get to be like, ah, that's me, and here He is for dinner in my house. For that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, I think we, yeah, we should look for those. Yeah. Together, and when they're not, <clears throat> we should be suspicious. Yeah, oh, that's well, really I mean, helpful. Yeah. Okay, the, the, yeah. the scoundrel line. This is the enemy. Yeah. Um, if it's the scoundrel line alone, like right. this is the the um, somebody said, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the role of preaching should be to to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And and how. Um, yeah, if, if we're if we're not somehow disturbed and comforted, you know, it, well, if we're disturbed and comforted, it, 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 it's perhaps a sign that this is really God speaking to us. That the that the when it's clearly not God speaking to us, this is just another way of saying what you said. It's it's, it's when it's a dead end. Mm-hmm. So you are a waste of space. Period. Uh, and those kind of 
messages we tell us that you are of no worth, you pathetic, pointless. Um, with the Lord, there may be real conviction mm-hmm. that that we've done something wrong or that we we need forgiveness, but there's always a way forward. <laughs> always, uh, guilt guilt is never an an endpoint or, or a destination for God. Right? It's it's yeah. I mean, maybe God does want us to be aware of of, of guilt, but in order that we repent and turn and be forgiven, you know, it's always uh, never a place to stay. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That kind of ties into my other question, which is oh, a couple of different things. First of all, thank you for acknowledging that striving for is part of real life, because I'm with that. <laughs> yeah. like, well, at work, I really do have to, like, pay mm-hmm. expectations. Right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, really and there's nothing wrong with that. It's Let's hard, <laughs> so it's hard to kind of have, like, yeah. the expectation on its head and say, like, with God, I don't have to strive mm-hmm. for it. Like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, but also... Sort of the guilty conscience, you were saying we don't need to have a guilty conscience when we're in Christ, mm-hmm. which struck me um, because I think because we do still sin and mm-hmm. we do still, uh, you know, cause problems in relationships and, mm-hmm. and sin against and have to make reparations. And so, just wanted to flesh out a little bit like, yeah. what, what about that guilt? Like, I think even before God, we still need to repent. Sure, yeah, what you're yeah. saying is we don't need to live in like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think we don't. When I'm talking about like a a, um, a guilty conscience, I mean it's not a place where we dwell. There may be all kinds of things. Multiple times a day, I need to come to God for it and ask forgiveness for. Um, and so it's not as if to be in Christ means I never need to feel bad about anything ever again. Where are you? Like no, actually, you know. But that's not. If I'm in Christ, there's always forgiveness. That and and always, God is always calling me into confession and um, assurance of pardon, for, for lack of a better way to know this is why. Um, and so, what I meant by that is that to 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 live with sort of as our as our modus operandi, uh, guilty conscience is not um, doesn't reflect who we are in Christ. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. And if anyone has any suggestions about how to live in a world where striving for is the norm, yeah. Mm-hmm. As a person who doesn't, who strives from, mm-hmm. Christ, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that's something I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> See, this. I think this is like what you said earlier about like coming to the communion table and mm-hmm. coming like coming in to the fellowship of other believers mm-hmm. and realizing like this is our family not because of anything that we've done and mm-hmm. it's a really important part of that reminder because we are mostly in a culture where we have to strive mm-hmm. for things or we feel like that to remember that God is not the kind of suzerain that makes those kinds of demands, even though mm. we live in a world with all kinds of demands like mm-hmm. that. Um, there has to be like places where we switch switch that around, and I think mm-hmm. some of the examples that come for like not feeling like how do we um, Taylor's question that he asked earlier. I think the answers are similar for the mm-hmm. yeah. 
reorienting. Mm-hmm. And it's, maybe this is unnecessary to say, but it's not as if like you go to work Monday through Friday and you're and you're in one mode. You're in mm-hmm. you're in perform for future approval mode, and then you go to church and you're like, oh gosh, I'm not dead. You know, mm-hmm. really, they're they're simultaneously existing realities all the time. So so that to sort of honor God in your work would mean yes to to try as hard as you can to do a good job and to do what's expected of you cheerfully and well and, and all that, but you're, you're living with simultaneously, try, you know, striving to try to to please your boss or whatever, but it's, you're also pleasing the Lord by working hard in your job, but you're not earning God's approval for, for, for working hard in your job. In, in a sense, that, that can provide an incredible... Um, Sort of encouragement, and mm-hmm. and uh, while while you're working and striving, stressed out about whether you're doing a good enough job according to you know your workplace, that actually you know I'm accepted by God right now. You know, mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. what the boss says about me, or whether I have you know if I have a bad review at the end of the quarter or whatever it is, that does not impact God's regard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I think that's just part of the daily. Constant struggle that it is to be to be a Christian in a context that just is, is quite foreign to our theology and our, our worldview, right? And again, it's not to say that this is bad. I mean, you know, people that work hard should get paid, and people that work <laughs> and really strive to do a good job should get promoted. You know, this is not this is not a problem. It's just that we do need to to just be very very aware that. Like, Salvation is different. <laughs> God's relation to a relationship to us through Jesus Christ is a completely different dynamic, um, and it's, ulti- it's the ultimate dynamic. It's the one that actually really, really matters and lasts. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts? I okay. Thought about that. Um, um, what the difference between striving for approval and, and excellence? Like, mm. Wanting to be excellent in what you're doing, and then also adequate. Um, what was the last word you said? And being adequate. adequate. Like it is enough. It is enough to like put this away and to go home. Mm. And um, I, I think about conversations with our own children, and then I got married, and we have 14 year old girls and a 10 year old son, but of uh, a discipline of adequacy. We have a child who struggles with, and like, what is enough? Like, when are things finished? Um, and excellency is something that she can become a slave to, and mm. even at her tender age of fourteen. Um, well, but it's, that. It, is, it is enough. Yeah. You have done enough. Um, and so not to be enslaved even an excellent job mm-hmm. excellent. and learning that you can put this away mm-hmm. I think is a very hard discipline to both model and to communicate like mm-hmm. great and what, um, I, I've told her this story but um, when Ben's grandmother died we went through boxes of letters and in that letter in one of the boxes there was a telegram um, from the Harvard Registry to the Yale Registry. 
and it was um, they were waiting for grades to be posted so Ben's dad could row in a race. It was my grandfather. It was your grandfather, yeah. yeah. Um, you had to get above a certain grade to be able to compete athletically. <laughs> and he got the, the day of the race, he got this telegram, and he received a gentleman's C in his history class. So Which was, in that day and age, totally acceptable. Yeah. Uh, totally acceptable grade for a gentleman. A gentleman's C, respectable. He got a gentleman's C in history. So Great inflation. Row in the, in the, in the race between Harvard and Yale. And I'm like, where is that? <laughs> what happened to the gentleman's seat? <laughs> Come on. Like, like, great. There's still the saying, C's get degrees. Yeah. That's just sort of like the modern version of gentleman's seat. Just in terms of, like, vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. But that, 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 that issue is a really interesting one because on the, on, God cares if, if, if we slack off and don't try hard. Say if you have a paper to write and you're 14 years old, like our daughter, and, and, uh, if you're like, I don't care about that, I'm just gonna do whatever. That's not honoring to God. But neither is stressing out so much out of some misguided idea of perfection that you have totally lost sight of, of, uh, Priorities, essentially, <laughs> and so I mean that's a that's a, a yeah, there's no one answer for what that looks like, what that means. It's really it's really uh, wisdom and and our relationship to God and discerning that. You know, when, when is it? When have you worked too hard on something? Where's that line? When do you need to just be like, you know what? God loves me. I can stop. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. I think that'll be it. Yep. Yeah.